You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. So we are in the concluding sermon on John chapter 17. Not concluding the gospel of John yet, just John chapter 17, where we have looked for a few weeks now at the longest prayer of Jesus that's recorded in the Bible. The first week, Jesus prayed for himself. So if you have needs, don't we all, feel free to pray for yourself. In weeks two and three, we looked at the longer section where Jesus prays for the believers, those who are already Christians. And then today, we're going to see how Jesus prays for those who have yet to believe. In the big picture, Jesus has now been in his public ministry for three years, preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons, performing miracles. And now he's just hours away from going to the cross and dying for our sins. And he stops and he prays. And it just shows that you need to pray first, no matter what you're facing. There are certain recurring themes and words in this prayer. One of those that Jesus uses quite often is glory or glorify. It occurs nine times in chapter 17. And the point is this. Our lives are short, brief. God gives us only so many days, only so many dollars, and we either can waste or invest our life for the kingdom. You know, oftentimes we waste our life because we don't know what our purpose is. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What are we here for? When Jesus speaks of glory or glorifying, he's telling us that he has lived with this mission, this purpose of glorifying God in his life. And he's going to pray for us today. And we would invest our life to the glory of God. That our dollars for God, our days for God, our relationships for God, our careers for God, our family for God. So it's all for the glory of God and for the good of others. You see, if you live for the glory of God, then you will make a significant impact in the lives of those around you. And what Jesus is getting ready to do here is make an investment, an eternal investment in you and me. He's going to go to the cross to take away sin, to give forgiveness and a relationship and eternal life. And as Jesus prays, he does it in such a way that we get to overhear it. And you know something of a person's heart when you hear them pray. And prayer is not only a sense of disclosing something in somebody's heart, but it's also a way of relationship building. So as Jesus is praying, he is telling us what's on his heart, but he's also building a relationship with us. It's also as Jesus prays, he is telling us his priorities. And I want us to capture so vividly what Jesus is talking about so that his priorities become our priorities. And so Jesus is praying 
And we pick back up in this prayer in verse 20. Jesus says in his prayer, my prayer is not for them alone. That is the believers he's just prayed for. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So let me pause right now and just ask, do you believe in Jesus? This is amazing. 2,000 years ago, Jesus is about to die so that people can be forgiven. And he is looking down the corridor of history and he's praying for you. You're on Jesus's heart. You're on Jesus's mind as he's preparing to go to the cross. He continues his prayer. That all of them may be one, Father. This is the language of unity. Another recurring theme in this prayer that we'll hit on again. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. God wants his people to be one so that as we go out and invite others to meet Jesus, they can become a part of his family. (laughs) Because look, it's really hard to go out and say, you know, we hate each other. We're mean to each other. You want to join us? Not a great sales pitch, is it? If you go to a doctor and the doctor says, I'm here to make people sick, well, you're going to go find a new doctor. If in a family you're always getting beat up rather than built up, well, it's hard to encourage someone to join that family. So the love among God's people then encourages others to join God's family. Jesus continues, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. He's living for the glory of the Father. He wants you and me to live for the glory of the Father. He continues, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus here is praying for unity, so I want to pause for a little while and talk more about unity. Why is it that Jesus keeps repeating this over and over? Well, first of all, know this, that unity is godly. Division is demonic. Unity starts with God. Jesus prays here that they may be one, that is his people may be one, as Father, you and I are one. He's leading us to talk about the Trinity. This is a view of God that only the Bible and only Christians hold. Now, some religions teach that there is one God. Some some religions teach that there are many gods. Only the Christian faith believes adheres to, proclaims the biblical truth of one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that God is unified, relational. God is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving one another, serving one another, in communication as one. So when here we, we listen to Jesus in his prayer, he's talking to the Father, which is what he always does. He has done that throughout history. 
It's relational. There's a oneness and it's a pattern and it's a model for us. As believers, when we gather in unity, we are fulfilling Jesus's prayer. This is how we are to do our own families and the connection with our spouse in particular. After 39 years of marriage, I can assure you that Lori and I are better together than me trying to do anything just on my own. I don't have to tell you that. You kind of guessed that, didn't you? And together, we can do a lot more than just one of us could. That's why I've said, if you want a better marriage, then pray with and for your spouse. God says that there's to be a husband and a wife, and the two are to become one. This is how the family is built. This is how the church family is built. Unity starts with God. So when we aren't practicing godly unity, then that's something that is demonic. You see, we are born into a world that is filled with folly and and pride and rebellion and division. We think it's normal. It's not. In heaven, right now, there is no division, there is no disunity, there is no disagreement. So when we operate with God's grace in a unifying manner, we are demonstrating the character and culture of the kingdom of God. And we are doing spiritual battle against demonic forces that seek to divide us. Why do I tell you this? Because at this point, Jesus' prayer is in an upper room with 11 guys overhearing. There used to be 12. What happened to the one? Judas Iscariot. He rebelled. He didn't act in unity. He, according to John 13, 27, had already opened his heart to Satan. Satan had already gotten Judas on his team. At this point that Jesus is praying for unity, he's praying to the Father in the presence of 11, not 12, because unity is already broken and it's satanic and demonic. Some of you think rebellion is a good thing. It's not. We live in the midst of a culture where rebellion against authority is seen as a good thing. It's demonic. So let me tell you two things of what unity is not and then two things of what unity is first of all what unity is not unity is not uniformity that everyone's exactly alike let let me put it this way christianity is much like a home not a prison in a prison you have uniformity literally they give you a uniform Everyone dresses the same. You have the same kind of bedding, the same square footage, the same schedule, basically the same diet. Christianity is a home, not a prison. So within Christianity, there are going to be a difference of cultures, different languages, different music styles. We don't practice uniformity. People are going to have different um, dress, the way that they dress, they prefer different Bible translations, prefer some more contemporary style, some others more traditional, some a blend of both. But unity is not uniformity. The second thing that unity is not, unity is not around methods. 
the Bible has principles that are timeless and unchanging. We have methods that are timely and changing. The principles never change, the methods do. And sometimes what happens is people get confused and they think their method is God's principle. So if you're not doing it their way, you're not doing it God's way. Let me give you an example. How many of you are parents? The Bible says, Proverbs 22, 6, here's the principle. Train up a child in the way they should go. That's the principle. What's the method? How are most of our children being trained? Well, think about coming alongside of them with schooling. Is the, okay, there's homeschool, there's private school, there's charter schools, there's public school. Which one's right? Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way they should go. The point is, is your child growing in godliness? That's the Proverbs Is your child growing in godliness? It has so little to do with school choice and so much to do with what happens in the home. So you can have diversity of method because unity is around the principle, not the method. I'll I'll give you another example. In the New Testament, it says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Are we about to do that? We are not. When the Bible says greet with a holy kiss, that's a method. What's behind that method? It's the principle of genuine hospitality, genuine greeting. In some cultures, even today, they greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. So there's a diversity of method. Unity is around the principle. Okay, so now what unity is. Number one. Unity is God at the center, God first. Again, let's look at the marriage relationship. The secret is if God is at the center, if I'm getting closer to God and Lori is getting closer to God, what are we getting closer? If God is at the center, if everyone is getting closer to God, then as a byproduct, we are getting closer to each other. That's why there can't be anything else at the center or it all blows up. It can't even be unity at the center, just getting along for the sake of getting along. God has to be at the center. And if we're not getting along with someone else, then God is not at the center for both of us. And number two, unity is the result of loving, humble service. What's Jesus just hours away from doing? Dying on the cross for our sins. That's loving. God loves you. How do we know this? Jesus died for you. That's love. Love is not just what you say, it's what you do. And it's also serving. This is an act of service. Jesus comes to serve and he does so humbly. So the key for unity is that the people, whether it's in a relationship, in a business, in a ministry, in a church, in a family, to be about loving, humble service to others. Let me just say this. I have never heard of an all-out war 
humble against humble. You know, wow, those humble people are killing each other. (laughs) You just don't hear about that, right? But let me say this about unity. When people pull together, their energy is multiplied. That's why Jesus prays for our unity in him, because there is power in our unity for him. And then look what happens. Sin is forgiven. People are baptized. Marriages and families are honored. Lives are changed and transformed. And get this, we are 2,000 years removed from Jesus' prayer, and Christianity is the biggest movement in the history of the world. More people worship Jesus than anyone else in the history of the world. The Bible is the most translated book in the history of the world. The church exists in more nations than any other organization in the history of the planet. No one is as big as Jesus. Nothing is as big as Jesus' church. And you know why? Because when people pull together under the will of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, surrendered to the word of God, that gets multiplied. All right, next verse. Jesus continues his prayer. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. We glorify God because he is glorious. You know, everyone lives for the glory of something or someone. We choose Jesus. And the good news is Jesus wants us to know him and live for his glory. The one who is in glory then comes down in humility. And after he dies and rises, where does he return? To glory. What verse 24 is telling us is that God goes from heaven to earth. That's humility. And then God goes from earth to the cross. That's greater humility. And then God goes to the grave. That's unprecedented humility. But then God conquers the grave and he ascends back into glory. So think about this right now in the presence of Jesus. The angels are singing, departed saints are worshiping and our prayers and our praise and our singing join with their voices. That means this life is a bigger deal than you think. And that means this Jesus is a bigger deal than you can think. And then the final two verses, and this is crazy. Jesus prays the longest prayer, and then he ends it by describing how we are a part of his rescue crew. Jesus has been on a rescue mission for us to save us. And then he wants us to be on his rescue crew to help save others by pointing them to the Savior. He concludes the prayer. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they that you have sent me and they know you. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. What is Jesus' end goal? The glory of God manifested in love. 
Jesus, in verses 1 through 5, prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for believers. And in verses 20 to 26, he prays for others to become believers. For 26 verses, he prays. He prays for everyone. And he continually prays against one thing, the world. The world that is in line with Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is referred to as the God of this world. But at the cross of Jesus, Jesus does battle with Satan and darkness and evil and hell. And at the cross, not only is your sin forgiven and a relationship with God restored, but your, your life is saved out of the clutches of the demonic forces that are seeking to own you. Those are disarmed. So Jesus goes to the cross and he suffers and he dies and he substitutes in our place for our sins so that guilt can be assuaged and forgiven, forgiveness be brought to you. Jesus here prays 17 times in 26 verses against something that he refers to as the world. What does he mean by that? Now, in the New Testament, the world can mean a variety of things. It can mean all the nations. It can mean the various cultures, the various races. But here and elsewhere, wherever Jesus speaks against it, he's referring the world, he's referring to it as a system that is corrupt and counterfeit. You see, God is the creator. Satan is the corrupter, the counterfeiter. God is the king who sets up a kingdom. Satan thinks he's a king, and he tries to set up little kingdoms, and this world is a counterfeit. Cultures, values, Morality, decision-making, all of that comes from one of two places, either down from heaven or up from hell. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He wants his culture to be your culture. He wants his values to be your values. He wants his morality to be your morality. And the reason so many of us struggle is because we keep bringing hell up into our lives. And Jesus is praying against that for us. On our behalf, Jesus is right now praying that you and I will not be defined by this world. And when there is conflict between the world and the word, our job is not to remove the word and support the world. Our job is to proclaim the word for the benefit, the blessing, and the transformation of the world. And just so you know, you got to understand this. When we do that, there will be opposition. What do you do then? You continue to love. You continue to serve. 
you respond to hatred with love. You respond to lies with truth so that you are speaking the truth in love, then they have a problem with God. But don't let them have a problem with you because you're unloving. Lastly, Jesus sends us out as missionaries in this world. You're supposed to be here. But you cannot make it in this world without the word. God's word will help you navigate this world. This is missionary language. Jesus is sending us out so that others will know of him. Some people are sent across the world. Some are sent across the street. Some are sent across the apartment complex or across the office cubicle or across the lunchroom. Why? Why are you here? Because there are people who don't know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, he wants you to tell them who he is and what he's done for them so that they might meet the king and become citizens of his kingdom. So I got to ask it again. Do you know Jesus? Do you know right now he is seated on a throne high and exalted? The angels are crying out. The departed saints are crying out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's praise. It's celebration. It's worship. And it's all about Jesus. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.